Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and much more Live on Sky Sports So a piece of interest I think for the football show this evening Especially if you're a Manchester United fan of a certain era Uh, Mick Clegg will be a name familiar to lots of you Or certainly Michael Clegg who is the son of Mick Uh, Mick was at Manchester United as well. He has written a new book. It's called The Power and the Glory. So, in effect, Mick Clegg was at Carrington at Manchester United for uh, just over 11 years. He joined in the year 2000 uh, and he's written a new book about the experience of working under Alex Ferguson, working with uh, various Manchester United players during that time. Uh, to sum up his early life, all too briefly here, but just for the purposes of time, he grew up in Greater Manchester. He was married young at 18 and a young family and bought a house and uh, was an engineer. He was also in a band and when he saw photos of him in the band, he didn't like his own skinny arms. So he decided to hit the gym. And within about six months of doing that, he was helping other people at the gym. So in Mick's own words, and he writes about it in the book, he just had a natural aptitude for the mechanics of Uh, working out and uh, getting results and he took a very intense interest in that whole area so so he was interested in things like plyometrics before most people were and he was self-taught in many ways which is kind of uh, extraordinary in this whole area so uh, word got around Manchester because he was coaching and working with lots of people Brian Kidd called him in 1998 territory and wanted him to do plyometrics with the Manchester United first team Uh, Mick thought this was a terrible idea because he felt they'd all get injured if they didn't have a history of that kind of work and he said no and then he kicked himself and thought what have I just done Uh, thankfully for him though and in part based on the work he had done with his own sons because people at the club saw how impressive physically they were they got back in touch and this time he accepted the offer so this is around the year 2000 and we'll join the interview at that stage Uh, so Mick here I mean just by quirk of circumstance the first player he really worked with in an intense way was Roy Keane who was obviously post his cruciate injury of 98 and trying to get back to full fitness even and continuing that in 2000 his ankle was giving him bother some knee problems hamstrings various things so um, Mick Clegg started working with Keane over the summer of uh, 2000 and, and struck up a great working relationship and that really helped him ingratiate himself with the, the wider playing group given Keane's status in the group so we'll jump in at that very point uh, Roy Keane and I was asking Mick you know so I mean uh, he's a combative figure uh, strong personality how do you uh, convince Keane of the right route to take and, and what's your approach almost because you know Clegg went saying you know, boxing is a big tar- part for instance of, of his approach so how did he figure out the way to work with Roy Keane was the first question here well, I mean, just looking at his, his fitness levels um, across the board against other people, um, obviously I'd gone in there when he was injured. And then you see him rolling out from being injured through rehabilitation into that power aspect. Now, with a player like Roy, you've always got to be thinking in terms of the aggressive type of nature he has towards playing a game towards people he's playing against and also towards the people he's playing with and when you see that you know that there's got you know you've you've got to try and channel these energies and uh, by listening to him a lot and watching him the way he was I was able to give him exercises that empowered that type of character rather than thinking always in terms of the body it's the mind that you're training. Now, I was so fortunate. Again, it's almost like somebody's watching over. Somebody's helping you. Who comes to the club? Bill Bessick. What's Bill Bessick? 
He's a psychologist, a very high-level psychologist. And so I spent a lot of time with Bill Bessick, the psychologist, who was brought in by Steve McLaren, who ultimately became England number two, I think it was, or, or at least it was the, um, it was at, um, what was the club they went to? Not Sunderland. Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, that's right, same area, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Middlesbrough. He, he went, I think he might have gone in as a number two at Middlesbrough. Now, having worked with them too, you know, he was teaching me about what psychology was. Not from the university, not from college, but how you use psychology in sport. And what he was saying to me is, look, you know, you have a natural ability to understand the psychology of what people need. And that's why he complimented me so much, because obviously I guided people to go and see Steve because, uh, sorry, to go and see Bill, because, you know, not everybody wants to see a psychologist back in the day, remember? Sure. Sure. Back in the day, you know, thinking about sitting on a, uh, on a couch and being asked daft questions from their point of view. Well, I'm sure. Because on Keane around that era, this was the time where, by his own admission, he was outrageously dedicated. To the point that when he started looking at his diet, he went too far and missed a game because his iron levels were too low. And I think his body fat percentage was like 5-6%. It was insane stuff. So you were dealing with somebody who was obsessively dedicated. Did your training make him stronger? Did he feel better in himself as opposed to what he'd been doing the two, three, four years previous to that? Absolutely. Because he was going through this transition, because he knew what he'd done in the past, the first thing he said to me when I talked to him in, that, in the canteen when I had our first brew was, I've never done weights before. And I said to him, well, what do you think they would do? You know, he said, well, I'm not so sure, really, because some people say yeah and other people say no. Mm. But I'm willing to have a look. I said, well, that's good because we need to do some any, anyway to strengthen your knees and your ankles and your hips, you know, and make sure they're all working together in line and in balance. So we need to do some of that, but I can show you some other stuff that you might feel actually makes you feel better out on that park, that you're more able to do different things than you've done before. And then hopefully, you know, you'll have a great season. So he was open to it. And yeah, uh, and I think in strengthening his body, he also strengthened his resolve and also he strengthened the power aspect of him feeling confident in what he's doing in talking to the opposing team and also talking to his own team. Yeah, and we know about his love of boxing here anyway, but that was right up his street and he was good. Very good, yeah. His technique was very, very good. He'd obviously been taught boxing by somebody who knows the game, you know what I mean, knows the boxing game. Mm. I think it was his brother that was the main one in the boxing. Obviously, Roy was a really good player from an early age, but he went there with his brother. I'm sure it was his brother he went with. And then, obviously, he got into boxing. and uh, Sorry, he got into football, you know, at a high level. So you've got to let that go and concentrate. You know, you get to a certain age where you've got to decide, what do I want to be in sport? Mm. Do I want to be a boxer, a weightlifter or a footballer? Uh, in terms of getting inside his head at times during the boxing, if you mentioned Teddy sharing him to him. <laughs> you're just trying to wind up. You're, you're thinking about winding him up now, aren't you, if he's oh. listening to this? Yeah, Teddy, him and Teddy, you know, great players and work really well together on the yeah. pitch. But there's a little bit of, you know, and it was, I, I just pick little things. Yeah. Only tiny things and just have a stab at it and just see what happens. And uh, there was certainly something I used. 
You know, your uh, name came up over here, as you might imagine, over the last few days, because uh, you were talking to Miguel Delaney for the London Independent. And that story about Roy wanting to take you to the O2 World Cup was new on all us. We hadn't heard that. Right. So uh, that was very interesting. I mean, that was uh, another a new aspect to, frankly, a story which over here we feel like we know every single little thing about. So uh, Keane felt like the work with you was going well, like the Irish team could take to you. And he tried to put it to Mick McCarthy and ultimately Mick said no. And, and your memory is Keane was really unhappy about that. Yeah, he was because for a start off, it was his idea. He, he, he you know, created it in his mind. And the first thing he needs to do is to make sure that I would be available. So he, he asked and I said, yeah, definitely. And I was like, oh, yeah, what? And he could see my enthusiasm. Mm. Now, he saw my enthusiasm training all them lads. And I trained a lot of lads at a very high intensity level. And he knew what I was like for being really up for it, you know, and, and, and you know, having the strength of character to be able to, you know, deal with people like Andy Cole and Dwight York and, you know, Yap Stam and people like that, you know. And he thought, yeah, he would probably help me, this guy. But then he's got to go to somebody else and put his case forward. And um, when it didn't go well, you know, and he had to come and tell me that, mm, sorry, mate, uh, rebook that uh, Bogner Regis trip that you've gone after. Trip of a lifetime in the summer. It's yeah, so. Who knows how that might have changed history. I can understand Mick McCarthy's point of view, though. I don't know this guy. We're seven, eight weeks out from World Cup. I'm sticking with my people. I get that as well. But you can see how maybe it peeved Keane. Uh, one last point on Keane. I mean, you talk about him in just effusive terms in the book that his stature in the dressing room, the way he was as a captain, was uh, really incredible. But you did make an interesting observation that after he left, as sad as you were when he left, you did feel it maybe liberated the dressing room just a touch? Yeah, it definitely did, because there's a new characters coming in. And sometimes they need to express themselves. And of course, you know, Roy kept control, which was really important for the development of the club. You know, they'd won the treble. It's like I came in after they'd won the treble, not before. I didn't come in, you know, and, and, and can say to myself, you know, self and other people, radio shows or whatever, oh, yeah, I was there and I helped to win the treble. I didn't. They'd already done that. Mm. Why should any of these guys listen to this guy who's not football anyway, but they all knew Michael and they knew what a physical character he was. And, um, you know, why should we listen to this guy? But they decided to. And Roy was the one who was controlling that. In my mind, it, it, it wasn't Alex Ferguson. From the point of view of the lads being in the gym and, and you know, the social aspect, Alex Ferguson weren't controlling that. He controlled the team who's going to play and everybody wanted to play, of course, especially in such a team. So Roy had a lot of control, but things then started to move. You're getting more staff in, more players in. You know, the size of the, the, the squad started to increase. Well, it, it makes it more and more difficult to hold on to all the... All, all the bits, I and mean, you get some really creative players coming in with different ideas, especially from different countries. You know, then it the mixture in the pot goes a different colour. And, you know, I think Roy would have still done really well if he'd have carried on, you know what I mean, there, just like Ryan Giggs did. Um, but he didn't, he moved on. But what happened then is people who wouldn't normally, because of Roy being there, have express, expressed themselves in the same manner then started to and that's why uh, you know watching um rio ferdinand and cristiano 
trained together it was just incredible because we was able to add things from a circus point of view now the circus of football within a gymnasium with weights you would have never thought they mix but they did mix and when people started to see the possibilities it was incredible you know so everything changed and there was such a great atmosphere and all the players came there was only a few that didn't come you know but most of them wanted to be there if just to see the circus show you know the rest of them you know they wanted to be in the show and it was always a, a great time and yes there was a liberation of a different way of thinking it didn't mean it was any better i'm not saying it was any worse what i'm saying is it it opened people's mind to new possibilities and there was nobody there where people think oh, i'm going to be careful here you know I, I always run the gym you know and when they expressed ideas and when i give them opportunities to try new things there was up for it and so off we went and it was a great adventure you said at ferguson that certainly as the club broadened and the staff numbers grew and just the whole operation became this massive global entity in many ways. He had to become master uh, delegator. But you said that really his uh, genius, his genius were effectively was his his, um, his powers of observation. This That's is the, this is what if you were to boil it down, he was always there. We know he was always first there and last to leave. But he was always watching everything and it wasn't just watching what was going on on the training ground he was watching body language timekeeping you name it he was uh observing everything at all times and making a, a, a judgments accordingly the thing that stunned me more than anything is how many players came and went to united youngsters even schoolboys, right the way through and he memorized the names absolutely incredible i've got a shocking memory for names sometimes can't remember the names more than five kids at time you know under pressure but he had this ability and everybody came in you know he was able to get on their level because he talked to them straight away using names and where they're from and this is asking little questions because he always knows a little bit about something and it's amazing if if somebody a, a very well known very successful character is actually saying something to you personal on a first visit that's a massive thing and that to most people would be the very thing that drew him to Sir Alex Ferguson so he's drawing people into his team by the knowledge that he has of names and places and situations so he brings them in and of course they're locked into him then and but then and this is the line I always use with my um, players here because I, I watched him for a long time now I noticed that if Alex Ferguson had a player who came to him and he said right will you do this he'd wait to see if they did this now if the player did this he'd then ask another question and ask him to do, go and do that now if they did that as well he'd then ask him to do something else but if they didn't do this guess what he didn't bother asking him to do that and certainly wouldn't ask them to do another because if they can't latch on to the most important thing the first thing he asks for if they can't do that then he's wasting his breath and there's a lot of breath wasted on people who don't know how to listen who don't know how to interpret it interpret and then don't know how to put the interpretation into action and to me that's what alex ferguson 
was like. He always had little chats, not big chats. He might have had some of the lads in and, you know, had a big chat, but I, I doubt that because I watched it. It was little things. And what he learned from little things was if they don't do what he's saying, if they aren't giving him what he's asking for, then what's the point of asking him something else? And that's why you end up with a squad who are actually acting on what you're saying. Without, like me, I had a stick threatening to hit people. I didn't hit many, I don't think. But he didn't need to do that. He just had to ask him a question and then see what happens. And he really taught me how to observe. And that's why when somebody like Cristiano Ronaldo comes along and he's asking questions, I say, well, go and do this. And then what do you do? You wait to see if he does it. And if he does that, then you'll ask him to do something else. And if he does that, you go on and on and on. And these people become very, very effective of what they want to do because in their minds, they know where they want to go. But they also know they're not perfect. That's why they've got to train so damn hard. But also they need adding to them the knowledge and understanding and wisdom that is possible to get to make sure that they they are living their dream. Yeah. And, and to me, I was taught by Sir Alex Ferguson. Bill Bessick gave me a basic rundown of about, you know, what you need to be looking for. Once you've got that, then you see somebody who uses it. When you see somebody using what you're looking for, then you can start using it yourself and then have your own, you know, uh, experience of trying methodologies that then work or don't work. And it means that you've got a lot more knowledge, understanding because of experience of good, the bad and the ugly. Mm. He liked a bit of boxing as well, Ferguson, you coached him. He certainly did. He loved it. Your relationship seems to have been based uh, quite often on winding each other up. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen him walk in Carrington, you know, doing the Hitler, you know, steps and, you know, uh, doing the, the tash, you know, all that sort of arm out and all that. And that can really upset you if you think in terms. But what arm was, he said to me that he needs, he knows he needs to train. I've been telling and telling, I'm Lynn Laffin, I've been telling Lynn, get him to come down and train because he's getting older, he's not looking after himself, he's got a lot of pressure because the club's growing, he needs to come and train. He needs to see Trevor Lee for his diet, he needs to get on that proper diet. And Trevor was there 20 years, fantastic nutritionist. So we needed to get him right. Now, what happened was, he wouldn't come. So then I'd say to him, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm waiting for your training, you don't bother. He says, look, it's not because I don't want to come, it's because I've had to do this and had to do that. He said, look, what you need to do is come and knock at the door and tell me to come down. So there I was knocking at his door. So, of course, when he opened the door, it's, oh, it's Hitler's ear again. Do you know what I mean? So that's more in the way he's saying that was like Hitler, because I was telling him he's got to come and do something. But he also knew that because of the way I'd been treated at United, which was very, very well by the people when I first went in, I was given opportunity because they didn't really have a gym before. This guy knows what he's doing because they've got Michael and Stephen to, to look at. And then they see the building of the gym culture that all come from me being in the gym all the time. I mean, I was out with the gym once, you know. Lauren Blanc gave me right bollocking. He said, I came in this gym and you weren't there. I said, I know, I was having a cup of tea. He said, well, I was in the gym. He said, I said, you was out on the pitch. He said, yeah, but I got injured. Mm. <laughs> and I said, right, I'll take your point. Because Lauren was brilliant. I mean, he brought experiences in for me to, 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 to understand and knowledge, to think about. 
and everything like this was teaching me how to run this gym. Yes. Probably I'll be checking in with someone every now and then. After we, we imploded in the league last year, I wasn't right for yeah. a long time. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTV Sports app now. You give great insights in the book to just different players in a whole host of ways. Like, for instance, David Beckham. When it came to bleep tests, we've all done the dreaded bleep tests in our uh, PE days. Nobody came close to Beckham. No. As, as I saw it for the time that I was there, nobody came close to Beckham. But the interesting thing about David is this. He liked to come in the gym. He liked the boxing and all. It wasn't the best, but he liked to put the work in. And he did a lot of extra out on the pitch. But he come to me one day, and it was probably about a year before he left. And he said, the one thing I'm not happy about is we speed out on the pitch. How can I get faster? I said, well, do you train hard? He said, yeah, of course I train hard. And I said to him, well, what do you think would make you faster? He said, I really don't know. You know, people have told me loads of things and this, that and the other. And I just said to him, right, I want you to use your imagination. So you're walking down a busy street and you're with Brooklyn holding his hand. And you can see there's a wagon coming down the road very fast. And then you notice that Brooklyn's no longer holding your hand. He said, what? I said, if you knew that Brooklyn was near to the road, you could see this wagon. How quick could you get to him? But I'm going to stop you there. Don't tell me yet. We're in the cup final. You're in the 18-yard box and a ball runs free. And you can run at that ball and smash it in the back of the net as long as you're fast enough. Now tell me in which instance would you be the fastest? He said, that's obvious, isn't it? I said, why? He said, well, it'd be my son to save my son. I said, right, good, good. But tell me, in that instance, have you done any extra training? Have you, you know, you've built your muscles up or done some extra speed stuff? No, you haven't. What it is, it's your desire to make sure that you get your son to go faster. That's what we've got to look at. You're thinking you're not fast enough. Well, I say to you, your desire is not high enough. Now, if you can improve your desire, we can give you exercises that will help you to become faster. That's absolutely no problem. But you've got to have that desire and then the desire to train. And he really went for that. He really went for that. And I was so, so pleased. You know, I'm so pleased to have... I don't... Again, I I never dreamed that up. I I was just stood there and and David came and it just came out. It was absolutely amazing. You talk of skulls, maybe if you had a favourite player, it might be skulls. And you say in the book, again, none of us really um, weren't aware of this, but not the strongest, not the most flexible, uh, not the fastest. Liked his boxing, wasn't amongst the best. He was in really the bottom bracket of athletes. But you did talk about his mind, for instance, and you said there was a machine that you had there at the club at a time, the NeuroTracker. Yeah. And it's kind of a cognitive training system and you put on 3D glasses and you can you right, track yeah. mul- multiple objects. And uh, Jason Park had the highest individual ever score. But That's you right. said in terms of consistent results, Paul Skulls mentally way ahead. Yeah. way ahead. Way ahead, yeah. Which explains so much about Skulls. Exactly. You see, you, sometimes you need equipment. You know, I, I've got all sorts of speed reaction tools and stuff like that. 
But you need something to give you parameters, to, to give you an idea of, of who's improving, who's not improving, and who starts off good and then peaks out, or who maintains the good, solid um, numbering, you know, uh, scale. So the NeuroTracker gives you that. And it was that, uh, again, another strange thing that happened to me. I was always interested in brain training. I did a lot of work on both sides of the brain and how to get the best out of your body. I learnt about um, left hand mirror writing and all sorts of stuff, where, where writing came from, how it started. And, and when you get into the brain in that manner, you really want to understand cognitive processing, the emotional aspects of, of what that does to you in times of trouble or in times of happiness. And uh, there's a layering of all these different aspects uh, of learning and then using what you've learnt and, you know, uh, multitasking and all that. And when I got the opportunity to go to Montreal University, it was just absolutely fantastic, you know. And um, I've got to admit, you know, the person that actually I had to talk to and convince was Tony Strudwick. Now, they weren't expecting me to come up with something like that. And, and Tony said, yeah, well, you know, you decide that's what you want to go and we're going to back you up on it. So I went there and when I brought the neuro tracker back, obviously Alex Ferguson was very, very pleased. We had um, an eye, um, an eye lady, um, a specialist in, in eye development and maintenance of, of good eyes, and she was called um, Gail Stevenson. Now she was dealing with most of the stuff as regards eyes, but this is brain cognition training. So there was a little bit of conflict, what what people call conflict of in, uh, interest, because I wasn't a scientist in any way. You know, and I were highly, uh, I were highly uh, decorated of um, qualifications and all the rest of it. But I had a lot of insights that other people didn't have. And so sometimes if you come up with something new and it's sort of bordering on what they might have done, you know, you're suddenly a little bit worried about what you're doing. But as it happened, nobody had done what I was doing. And I brought it in and Alex Ferguson was really pleased with it. When I got the uh, players to do it, they really wanted to do it. And we went right the way down from the first team all the way down, you know, to the um, academy. And I think we start, yes, we did. We started it with the uh, schoolboys as well at one point. And it went down really well because you can really start to understand how their minds are when, when you think in terms of concentration. You know, to multitask, you have to concentrate. Now, if you're multitasking with four objects and you can see that they're really good at that, then there's a good chance of doing that out on the pitch. And the thing is, out on the pitch, there's more objects than four. There's a lot more than that. So to be able to cope at Man United with Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, the man, and obviously the players that they was working with, to go and play with that first team, that group of players during that period of time, you have to be at the top level. So most of the lads really bought into that. The ones that didn't, to be honest with you, was when you're testing them, they weren't very good. Didn't Instead like of it. thinking, look, I, I, they felt embarrassed, yeah. they wouldn't come. And that is a big thing. Embarrassment can really stop your um, growth. Whereas people who can take things and really have a go at it, and this is where I come back to Paul Scholes. Here's Paul Scholes. No, he weren't good at sprint tests. He weren't good at weightlifting. Plyometrics were his greatest thing. He weren't as good as Roy Keane on boxing. But I tell you what, in a three meter space, in a circle, round yourself. I used to do the speed reaction thing with the focus mitts using 
um, the hands and the feet and then the movement to cones to touch the cones then get back to punch and kick and all the rest of it and then we start asking them very simple mathematics etc you know so your your brains work in a very high level your heart lungs and circulatory are you've just done some weight so you've increased the blood pressure that's when you find out where somebody's at their best and do, during that exercise nobody touched paul right. now when i took that into looking at paul as a player in midfield you could see that he he had much more awareness of what was going on around him he was able to see things and he didn't always have to control the ball by touching it he just put his body in the right place and he was able to move without actually touching the ball and get the ball to other people the only time you've got to be careful with paul scores is if you're away on tour and he's got a ball there and you've got your back to him because yes. if you're 20 meters or 80 meters he'll bang it on the top of your damn dead it was amazing you told an amazing story the night of the OA Champs League win in Moscow and uh, Wayne Rooney as was the case for a lot that season was shunted out onto the wing a little bit which you know in a way was to his credit because he would do a job there and do a you know job that I'm, I'm, I'm sure he felt you know in some respects diminished his many talents and at the celebration that evening he came up to you and he said it was shit that and you were kind of well, what do you mean and he said i was absolutely shit i'm just so disappointed he was so disappointed with how he'd performed on the biggest stage on a big night for him in his career and it uh, was incredibly emotional it was was you know kind of head in your shoulder and um i think it soured the night for him it was almost like a player who, who was you know almost like roy Keane and paul skulls missing the 99 champions league final in that kind of vicinity for him it it it, it tainted the achievement for him he was very emotional that night he was very emotional and and these are the things you would carry to the grave sometimes i obviously i heard and saw a lot of things at united but you don't let them out because the personal things are not to do with anybody else but obviously i've selected things for the book because people are really was really in, interested in the book i mean the guy who wrote wayne's book just recently i know he got in touch with me um about doing some work with him um but I'd also been told that, look, your book's going ahead, so be careful what you're giving out to other people, etc. So I didn't push for that. Although I knew Wayne's book would be way ahead of mine, you know, in terms of what, who, who would read it, etc. I thought, that is a story that's really, really important for people to understand about players. Because everybody thinks, look at the car, look at the house, look at the this, look at the that, look how much money they're earning. But they forget that at the end of the day the footballers and it's the football that was the most important thing and because they are human beings and their emotions drive them to play football it doesn't matter how much money you're earning of course it's great having that money but the the initial thought of your mind is i want to play i want to score i want to win i want to do great because it's what i've been trained to do and i've wanted to do and that's why i put all my effort in and to see somebody like that who's put so much effort in, and I've had people criticising um, Wayne through me in a really ridiculous manner, um, to try and say that he's not a dedicated person was absolutely shocking to me that I found out somebody had said. Wayne was so dedicated to what he wanted it, and he proved his dedication without having to prove it just by an emotional, a little emotional outburst where he sits down by me and, you know, how are you doing it, like you do, and then we just get into this conversation and then he showed his true feelings. Now, again, it's almost like you're being taught lessons 
having experience from people at really, really top level. And that's what really shocked me about my life, is things like Wayne yeah. along, things like Paul Scholes. And to say that was amazing. And Mick, so I don't want to get you in trouble here with uh, this question, and this isn't going to be edited or turned into a headline, but on Rooney and, say, his attitude to the gym versus Ronaldo, who we might come to in a moment, because for a time they were kind of parallel as the two great young players of their generation, and Ronaldo kept going, and then for all the remarkable, and I mean genuinely remarkable things Rooney did, there is a slight sense of, God, the player of you know, the Euros when he was 19 years of age. Did we see that enough through the rest of his career? Was Rooney dedicated in the gym? And if he wasn't, would it have made a big difference to his career, do you think? Look, you've got to look at why do people come in the gym? You know, people who come in the gym are searching for something. They will come in the gym and have a look around and see if it's there. Now, I had a conversation as soon as Wayne came and he told me about what happened at Everton. Now, he used to play a lot of five-a-side, six-a-side, seven-a-side. He was always playing football. And, of course, his idea was get that ball, beat somebody quick, bang that ball in the net. That's what he was about. Now, he's looking at other people and other types of training. And in his mind, he didn't see a lot of what we did from his point of view as going to help him to do that. So it's not about him being lazy in the gym. These players are there to work out in their minds what's going to do in the best. Wayne Rooney wanted to be a top goal scorer. Did he achieve what he was going for? Let me ask you that question. Did he achieve what he was going for, Wayne Rooney? Mm, sure did, yeah. No, he sure did. So there you are. He made the right decision. He made the right decision on what he was doing. Now, when it comes to him being injured, and him needing to rehabilitate like I did with Roy Keane. He put every bit of effort that was necessary to get him fit to go to the World Cup or whatever game he was playing in. Every bit of effort. But when he was fit, he, in his own mind, thought, this is what I need to be the most effective at scoring goals. And so that's what he did. And that did not involve coming in the gym that much apart from some of the boxing stuff he did a bit and, in midsection and, here and were you a touch frustrated with that because we had a conversation actually recently in the show on the back of Rooney's Amazon documentary you know and it's funny you think of him at the World Cup in 2010 and remember he's, he's kind of walking off the pitch and he's telling the camera how oh, nice that you're booing your own fans and at that stage he felt like he was physically beginning to approach a slight decline that's how it fe fe feels in our memories. And yet he was only 24, 25 then. He should have been coming into his peak. There is a sense he aged prematurely. Now, That's I don't know, right. Yeah. And, and could, 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 right. could that have been halted by uh, gym work? Or, absolutely. Or was that, it could have. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. not just like miles on the clock as a 16-year-old. Exactly. That's the thing. Wayne was thinking in terms of scoring goals and just being out there performing. But the only problem with that is you're going to take some knocks. Now, these are the things that I said to Wayne, look, you need to do more work to give him longevity. You look at Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs was always by far the most prolific in the gym until Cristiano came along, recognised what he was doing and said, I'm going to do more than him. But Wayne, at his mind, his focus, his arrowhead was being out there effectively scoring goals. But this is where somebody like Cristiano is way ahead because he has an, a total view of what he needs to do. Yeah. 
not just from his own point of view, because he listened to people and he tried to understand what people were saying and then he put it together. And then that's what he's created is the mind most able to understand what's necessary to be the best for the longest possible time. Well, let's talk Ronaldo then. Um, because this was, again, it was kind of fascinating to see how he did it. Like, for instance, you do make the point. We often refer to Ronaldo as the skinny kid who turned up at Carrington. And you said, no, at 17, 18, he had a perfectly good physique. He was obviously not as built up, but he had a good physique. Uh, the word you used, which was quite interesting, is you said he was patient. Yeah. Ronaldo, Ronaldo approached his body and his career and his football with a certain degree of patience. He understood the value of going up in increments. Absolutely. And, and that's the whole thing. What I recognised straight away, or not straight away, to be honest, no, it probably took me nine months before I recognised that Cristiano was actually doing an apprenticeship. And then as it rolled out to the five and a half years, it was quite obvious that he planned this. I need to go to United because of what's going on. So Alex Ferguson, Ryan Giggs and the team that was there, go there and learn the job from the best. You don't go and learn it in, in the university. You go to the University of Football Life, and that's Manchester United, because he wanted to play for Real Madrid. And what he did was able to pick up all the bits. He never worried. He never got panicky. Obviously, things went wrong, but he weren't in a panic. Even to this day, even today, every training session that I do with lads, they rush this and rush that and rush the other. And I have to be talking to them continually. Because I'm called seed of speed, you know, it's the seed where speed comes from. And they think because it's that, they must do everything as fast as they can. Yeah. Well, that's ridiculous. You've got to get the strength in there. You've got to get the balance in there. You've got to get all the different workings of speed to make sure it's effective speed where it needs to be. And rushing around like a lunatic doesn't get them that now I, I use this thing and some people might not like this but i say that they rush around right so a lot of the lads who've rushed around i call them in and they said why are you calling me in i said we well, have heard a player called ian rush haven't you he said yeah i said well ian rush was one of the best players i saw in the 18 yard box being able to take his time pick things right and put the ball in the back of the net you were so calm. You're not calm. You're rushing around like a lunatic now. Stop it. Now, to give him a name, Ian Rush, which is a, somebody who's really, really calm and a great goal scorer, but they're rushing around, they tend to get the idea when I use that terminology. Mm. So then they will bring their performance levels down to be able to um, shoot well, to bring into composure the right body movements and the right balance but it does take time you've got to really get into, into people's heads so that's yeah. why i use titles i saw you you said something as well which for all the many uh, players who've commented on ronaldo and explained how he turned himself from good to great to world class to you know as, as good as anyone has ever played the game i'd never heard anyone make the observation you had which is that you felt Say, for instance, like we all remember the tricks and he'd be frustrating initially. And I'm sure he frustrated the players a lot. Uh, but you said, for instance, say a certain trick or a certain skill or a certain move, he'd work on that in training, work on that in training, work on that in training, begin to get proficient at it. And then he might almost debut it against a quote unquote lesser side and 
see how it goes in those matches and those matches, but wouldn't do it against Arsenal or Chelsea or in a big Champions League game until it was ready to go up to that level. So again, that that, that wow. point of patience, that that is extraordinary if he was consciously adding to his repertoire bit by bit by bit. And oh, I'll take that now. That's ready for Chelsea. That's ready for a match. That's so, still a training. So let's go back then. Let's get go back to where I started with guitar player. You know, you've got to learn all the bits first of the piece mm. before you do them in the band. You know, you've got to do the, I was a bass player. I had to do all the, the bass part. And then you might do the bass with the drummer. And then you might bring the rest of the band in. And then you might put the, the singer on. And then you'll go to a little venue to try this next song out on, you know, because you, you, you'd have a, your repertoire, but then you'd add an extra song. Well, you wouldn't go doing a new song at your biggest venue. You'd make mm. sure it was perfect. Mm. So I'm seeing these things go on. I'm watching young kids from a young level because I'm still coaching kids of six, seven and eight years old now. Do you know what I mean? And I've seen this all along. My, my gym is 38th in its 38th year Olympic sport gym in Ashton Wonderline. But I've been coaching before that even. And you see these traits. And when you see traits, you want to see all the great traits that you're watching, observing and experiencing. And then think, well, if there's a person on earth who epitomizes these traits, who would it be? And there's only one. And that's why I can see, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo as a genius. Now, people have said he's a genius from a footballing point of view. But to me, yes, he was. But, you know, there's other geniuses at football. But his genius was putting all these things together. The planning aspects, the understanding aspects, the peripheral aspects of getting rest and getting the right diet and having the right company. And he, he's just got everything together. So he's showing a full knowledge and understanding of wisdom for playing football. And so he becomes my pattern. So if you want to look at, at, at a pattern of what is right for football, it's very simple then to go in, into industries and say, well, this is the pattern that you need from your workers. You know, you go into a school, your school team want to, you know, win a cup. You know, this is the pattern you need to be able to be successful and win that cup if you've got a chance. Yeah. And suddenly... You've got a pathway, you've got a pattern, a model to work on, and then you can really start talking to people and they will understand you and they'll even listen to you like you are doing me at the moment. Well, I've just one last one for you. Uh, people might be interested. You described uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy as somebody who had a huge influence on your thinking. This guy was uh, of serious substance. It was absolute serious substance. I spent a lot of time with Ruud. He even went to his wedding. A few years went to start to his wedding. It was just fantastic to be with the guy, because he was so intelligent, but also he was so um, playful, like a child. So you got a very, very intelligent child, you know, running about a football pitch, and you start recognizing. I mean, he scored all his goals in the 18-yard box, apart from one, I think. Mm. And you think, wow, how, how is he doing that? How is he planning to be able to the things that happen? You know, the, uh, the, the, the most intense uh, part of the pitch where there's most people in there and he's able to do that. And you've got to start picking out what he was doing to create that ability to be able to do that. And so I started talking to him, listening to him, 
asking if he'll try this and getting him to show me things he's tried himself and we built up a really good relationship and it was really the neuro tracker the search for neuro tracker was really the search for Rude Van Nistelrooy's mind that's what it was all about and that was before Cristiano even came so I worked really well with Rude absolutely loved the guy in fact I texted him and, and phoned him the, the last week and he's not got back to me yet and I'll be gutted if he doesn't do rude give us a ring <laughs> because there are still aspects of rude van nistelrooy that i really want to understand because now i've done a load of research i've worked with a lot of different players and there's really one or two little bits i finally want to put this pro in this model the perfect model of how to become successful and it's not just about football it's being successful in lots of different areas because mm. he would talk to you about unconscious finishing he would he would uh not really remember a lot of what he's doing in there yeah so he he, he said to me the words were i just go unconscious mm. now i had to unravel that what was is going unconscious and did he actually go unconscious and so i had to spend a lot of time on quantum physics and stuff like that just to really look at how the brain works how, how life works you know trying to picture and understand because you, you need again I'm going to model him how do we find a model that fits what he's doing that you could give to somebody else I mean people have said to me you wouldn't be able to teach anybody what you do because you look at things differently other people Rude himself said that but what I've had to do is try and understand how I could model what I know and how I be begun to know it yeah and so that is the big challenge for the rest of my life which could end tomorrow you know what I mean mm. I'm getting on a bit now and uh, you know <laughs> that's the bit I'm still trying to get that final model to say well this is my this is my bit to my sons yeah. or anybody and daughter who, whoever wants to listen that's the complete package do you know what's quite interesting as a as a very final thought is uh, we certainly have perceptions of footballers as kind of a closed shop and, and uh, you know closed thinking potentially and the way you're talking uh, be it rude going unconscious and you're digging into quantum physics and words like plyometrics and uh, psychology and the neuro tracker and cognitive tests. Uh, there was a real openness in that Manchester United dressing room and, and I suppose Ferguson oversaw all of that. But like you could definitely imagine a few lads going, what is your, what is your man Clegg on about? Honest to God, this is a way with the fairy stuff. Can we just get a football out? So it does show, like, I mean, I'm sure if they felt it wasn't working, they would quickly get rid of it. But, like, it's kind of, um, it was progressive. It was progressive. The, the, the one who uh, held me most sort of, you know, that uh, bit quirky, bit away with the fair was with Rio, was Rio. Now, now Rio, um, you know, his personality and the job he did, I mean, I, I remember Rio. When I look at all different players in different teams, etc., I used to say to uh, staff and players, Rio looks like he could play football smoking a cigar with his slippers on. Mm. Because again, like the Paul Scholes, he was so in tune with what's going on. It's all mathematics. It's speeds, different directions, etc. The ball, the players, all that movement. And he's able to get in the right place at the right time. That's mathematics. Not done on paper, done in his brain. <clears throat> and then when he says something like, to me, you're away with the fairies, 
it's, it's really interesting because he still wants to come and train with me every day. And one day he says to me, right, he said, I've got a job for you. I said, what's that? He said, I've got a friend of mine who's, uh, who's a millionaire and he's in, he's in industry and um, I, I'm frightened of him dying when he's capable of really being a very, very successful man. I said, what are you on about? He said, I know this guy called um, Mahmoud Kamani and he worked in, in Manchester. He had a, you know, he made clothes. And he'd, when I went to see him, he'd, he'd opened this, this company called Boohoo.com. And I went in to train him. Uh, Rio said, you've got to go in there and train him. So this guy who's away with the fairies, and he comes and trains every day, is saying, go in there, go in there, and talk to a very, very wealthy man who's very, very busy, and start training him. And obviously he wanted to know how what was going on, so I had to go in there and I had to assess him, talk to him, listen to him, watch him, and then see how I could help him. Well, now he's a billionaire. Now, I'm not saying that that's anything to do with me, but it's just the things that happen in my life. Things have happened really good, and I'm very, very fortunate. And I'll, you see, each of the stories that's in the book, that's only the seed of the story. So you call it seed of speed in <laughs> my business. There's a seed in there of each little story, but each of them stories could actually open out into a much bigger flower. Hopefully a rose, you know, with very nicely smelling, but also very beautiful to look at, but who knows? Very good. Well, listen, it's been great to have you on. Uh, real pleasure to get your thoughts and memories and insights into uh, that Manchester United team. So Mick Clegg, the book is called The Power and the Glory, and it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, Mick. Thanks very much. See you then. Bye.